Hey guys, what's up? Trey back here at Trey Wolf, and welcome back to another episode of the True Blue Show. I am here today, and it um today being September 17th, where I've essentially considered it the start of the international break already because um our game against Liverpool this weekend was canceled. So the last one being the Salzburg game, which was not a very uh great game. We had a one-one um draw, but uh it was Grand Potter's first game as our manager. So I think we had kind of low expectations going into it, kind of similar to when Tuchel had his nil-nil against Wolves back in the day. Um, but today is kind of a Chelsea therapy session because there's been a lot going on since we've last talked, a lot to process. Um, obviously, Tuchel has been sacked. Graham Potter was hired. Um, we are bottom of the group stage um, in the UCL right now after losing to Zagreb and tying, uh, drawing to Salzburg. And we are primarily formed isn't pretty good at either. Um, and also in recent events with the Queen passing, um, we have had two games pretty much um delayed to what seems like it will be in 2023, um, after the um probably sometime in January, February, where the schedule uh fixtures will lighten up a little bit because from right now until the World Cup. Um, I know in October, at least, we have games every midweek and every weekend. I don't know about November, but all I know is it is a jam-packed schedule uh, until the World Cup break, which is about the second to third week of November. And then we are probably going to have about four to five weeks off from uh, domestic football. Um, and then we're not going to see Chelsea probably again until about um, middle to end of December. So it's going to be a very weird time going forward especially because um, the winter, um, the international window is here now. And this would have been the best chance for Graham Potter to be able to work with the boys and really evaluate his tactics and what he wants to do. And it's good for him because he has a break, but it's bad because a lot of our players are international players. So they're going off to their teams to do um, a bunch of friendlies that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, except for the fact that it's the last time they're going to meet up before the World Cup. So today we're here to talk uh, just about how we are feeling with all the recent events um, and basically just try and talk out what we think is happening with Chelsea and what we think could happen going forward now that Potter is here. But I'm happy to have an, um, an old friend of mine on the mic today. Um, I have Alex, or you might know him on um, Twitter um, as Alex H. Um, and he's um, been on the pod before. It's been a little bit since talking to him, but I always like talking to Alex because he's a very opinionated person. He's a very tactical mind, and he's always um, a very good um, person to talk to to kind of uh, figure out the detailed side of things, like um, the very minute details that sometimes we might just talk about big picture stuff. But he's a very uh, tactical mind. So, Alex, how are you doing, man? Well, uh, well, that's that. What an introduction! I don't know if I'm going to live up to that today because it's going to be a bit emotional. We'll see. Um, first of all, well, it's great to be on your show. Obviously, it's been since uh, May 2021 that I haven't been on, so that was the Leicester uh, review, sort of like Leicester postpone or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, obviously, it's great to be on. I'm happy to actually uh, be here on again and. Looking forward to discussing whatever questions you have, whatever you want to go over. Yeah, no, I'm definitely happy to have you back on. Um, I know that you were in the States for a good while, I think, during that period. Um, but now that you're back in the UK, um, maybe you're going to have a little more regularity. Maybe we can have you on the pod a couple more times. Um, now, you've been, um, first thing I want to ask, you've been going to the games because uh, you, I think, are you a season ticket holder? 
I am a season ticket holder, yes. Okay, so yeah, I met, heard you mention before we talked um, about you going to you went to the Salzburg game. Uh, how many home games have you gone to this season so far? So the the West Ham game was the only home game I didn't go to this season because I was on holiday in a different country. Like physically, there was no way I could go. Otherwise, I would have committed to all games. But yeah, that was the only one home game that I can go to. Okay. So um, before I get your thoughts on what you thought about um, Tuchel sacking, um, you, you provide a unique perspective for us because we actually talked to somebody who goes to the games. Because as we know, we're um, everyone on here probably listens uh, to the pod and we interact with on Twitter. It's very FT influenced. Very, We see all those uh, opinions on there. And something we always try to remember is that with all the people that we hear on FT and like all the kind of rash and um, like um, um, just critical opinions of whatever's going on, it's not always reflective on the people that actually go to the games on the ground because they're not normally the same crowd you definitely have some people that go but i would say on average they're about two different types of the fan base can you give us a little insight on what the home atmosphere has been like towards the end of tuchel's reign here at chelsea um and then um and at the end of it get maybe give us insight of what it felt like at salzburg or not at salzburg but against salzburg um well oof. Yeah, that's that's a bit of a tricky one. Uh, I think the so I'm, I'm trying to recall back the last home game before obviously uh, to go got sacked was obviously West Ham. I wasn't there before that. That was Leicester where we won two one. You know the mood felt like okay. Look, obviously, I think at the time it, it the mood was very much you've got these new players in, yeah, like. How is he going to fit them in? You know, it's new players. It's going to take time to really gel. So it's not going to be hitting straight away. And I, I think a lot of fans probably also realized that they did see also the problems that has been happening a lot is that you can create a lot, but not finish your chances or you don't create enough. And it's, it's basically the same constants and, we were hoping that, okay, you know, maybe like a couple of weeks after the transfer window, once everything was sorted and then the team started to gel properly, maybe even during the international break, I think my feeling was going to be that, okay, you know, this team is ready to go on. By the way, just keep in mind, like until the, like between the international break and the World Cup, it's like 13 games twice a week. So my expectation was, okay, hopefully there'll be, there'll be rotation, we'll have depth in all our areas. And if we need to basically get that sorted on deadline day to get the depth, that would be done. That was my expectation. Um, contrast that to the Salzburg game, a lot has happened since then. Obviously Tuchel got sacked and Obviously, the, the mood from the fans, the match-going fans, was, okay, well, was if it was not for the Queen passing away, there would have been booze. There would have been booze at the fact that Tuchel got sacked. There, like, there would have been, like, banners of, are basically in support of Tuchel. So I think there would have probably been the Deutsche Maestro banner that would have gone up uh, in the shed end. 
I'm pretty sure that was planned, but the problem is the Queen's passing. So they've decided not to do that. They've decided to actually instead, you know, you know, respect, you know, Her Majesty the Queen and, you know, put um, the flags over there. And instead, what they decided to do is they clapped in the 21st minute for Tuchel because obviously he, he won the, uh, the Champions League in 2021. So, yeah, I mean, it's contrasting emotions. I think also people believe that Tuchel lost the dressing room and felt that some players were also responsible for that. Um, Christian Pulisic being one who was obviously booed when he came on the pitch and booed at full time. Hakim Ziyech was another. Booed when he came on, booed when basically he made a bad pass or a bad cross. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, the the reaction to the bad, like one of the corners that he did oof, from the fans, yeah, uh, you could tell they were they were not happy. And, and I think, obviously, ZX saw that and, you know, he took to Instagram and he basically said, said yeah, I don't know if you saw that, you know, I hate it or love it. It's his way of saying, do you know what, frankly speaking, you can hate me if you want. I don't care. You can love me if you want. I'm going to do the best I can, I hope. I, I hope that's what it means. But it's difficult because these were the two players that weren't playing as much under Tuchel. So to say that these players were responsible for or to act as though these players were responsible for his downfall, I think it's a bit harsh because they weren't actively involved in trying basically like, you know, winning or losing games. You know, the ones that were actively involved were the likes of Thiago Silva in winning games, obviously. They were more involved. Mason Mount was more involved. Kai Havertz was more involved. So I, I could let in name of, of course, more players. You know, Reese James was obviously more involved and all that. But the point is very simply, for me, I think it's very harsh for fans to boo Hakim Ziyech, even though he wasn't playing as much and didn't lead to the downfall or the sacking of Thomas Tuchel. You know, it can't be just one or two players that leads to the manager losing the dressing room. There has to be more than that. Do you think that a lot of the, the fans' outbursts could also just deal with um, what Ziyech's attitude looks like during the game? No, because they booed him before, like, before the match even started. And I think they, they used the, the game against Zagreb where he came on at halftime. And then there were newspapers that were saying that basically Ziek was trying to show to Tuchel, you know, I, I, don't want, I don't want to be here. I don't want you here. And I think that's the problem with, with newspapers is that they like to sometimes bend the truth to try and suit their own agenda and actually, you know, bring in interest, bring in like, like attract people to the site. And whenever there's a sacking and emotions are high, they know exactly how to bring in attention, you know, to their website. And that's, I think the big problem is that people love to focus on that rather than actually focusing on, okay, well, why was he actually sacked? It had nothing to do with that. He was sacked for one reason and one reason only, 
he was sacked because he had a problem communicating with the boards. Yeah, that is something that we've seen a lot of quotes come out um, with from actually uh, credible journalists. So you've seen Ben Jacobs, you've seen Adam Newsom, you've seen Nazar Kinsella, you've seen Fabrizio Romano all come out with pretty consistent quotes about Tuchel falling out with Bowley. And honestly, it wasn't more just since the end of the transfer window. It was from pretty early on. Um, and so I would say all those quotes that you see, you wouldn't necessarily take it with a grain of salt. You probably could take it with some credibility. Um, and in, in Tuchel's defense, he probably shouldn't have had to do as much as he did um, during the summer window because of the lack of director of football. Um, so I think it was that, but I think there may have been just a kind of fundamental difference um, in beliefs and views between him and Bully going into this. And um, as we all know, Bully was heavily prepared to invest in the club, not only in transfers, but also in the stadium. We've seen recent comments when he went to, I believe, um, it was Colbum. Um, it might have also been Kings Meadow um, that he uh, said the facilities weren't good enough. This sounds like he's planning to upgrade that. So he's really thinking long term in terms of how he's handling this club. So obviously a huge part of that is management. And it is a very big thing in American culture and American sports to have a fairly communicative align of um, operations from the top down and from you got from the head coach all the way through his staff, all the way up to the owners. There's a lot of, there's a lot of communication. Whereas the Roman Bramovich era, you had basically Marina. It seems like operating as the top of the, of the totem pole and you obviously had Petr Cech in there. Um, you had um, Bruce Buck. And I believe it seems like Tuchel was much more in favor of how things worked out with that. Um, so there is, one thing to say is that a lot of behind the scenes um, issues were a big contribution to why Tuchel was gone. And I would say maybe gone so early because um, maybe if there wasn't as many issues behind the scenes, I think maybe he would have gotten a little bit more time considering how many uh, signings he got in the summer. Um, but I also think there is a, uh, something to be said about the end of last season Given, yes, there's a lot of context between the sanctions and how are uh, um, just all the different circumstances that kind of affected how the team was playing. But even the start of this season and the preseason, there was very a lot of shocking decisions um, and performances. Now, you can't, Tuchel can't take all responsibility for the performances, but he can take uh, responsibility for some decision making. Um, and I think. I think that is also what has really been standing out as to why um, it probably happened now that uh, Tuka was sacked because the trending, the trending of how the games have been, and granted, we have won a couple games and we, uh, we, we've drawn, uh, I think one or two, I think it was two between Spurs and um, South, um, not Sarlsberg. Sorry. Yeah. I, I'm not looking at the, the results right now, but overall, what I can say is besides the Spurs game, I don't think I knew I saw one game this season where it felt like positive and where we actually looked like a good team. It always looked like a struggle. Uh, you lost to Southampton. That was a horrible result. You got humiliated by Leeds. That's a horrible result. Everton was a struggle, but also the first game of every season is fairly tough. So I think the fact that we as a team didn't even look strong it really didn't help in Tuchel's favor. Um, and you can go ahead and like speak to what you thought about like the beginning of the season um, from us and, and like how much 
maybe how much fault Tuchel could take um, and why he was sacked. See, from my perspective, whenever I look at the, the pre-Boli era under Tuchel, what I see is a structure. I see Marina at the top. I see Czech as the sporting director, the guy who communicates between Tuchel and Marina, and then Tuchel, who's the head coach. The big problem was is that Todd Bully was the co-owner. He was the interim sporting director, and he was the guy who was talking with Tuchel and told Tuchel, okay, this is what I want you to do. Not only do I want you to be the coach, I want you to communicate with me about your signings and all that, and you know, basically acts like a manager. I also want you to be the guy who takes care of the scouting department by scouting the players using data, which to me shows the problem and the lack of trust really in the department of scouting. Because if you're saying to the manager, okay, you rely on the data, you know, you're basically saying that the scouting department is not good enough. We're going to try and fix it. So you add that all together. The guy then goes through, obviously, like the previous season, obviously got, got a divorce. Obviously, he's, he's obviously then went, to, went into a relationship with someone else. But the, you, you have all of those things. So emotions and then afterwards, you still have the, the sanctions that can impact a manager very, very heavily. And he weathered that. You know, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, him and Emil Hayes, they weathered that. And if you look at all of that combined together and you tell me that at the end of the day, the decision from Tor Bolli not to understand, not to tr or to try to understand where Thomas Tuchel is coming from by basically saying he wants to basically manage the team it's basically him saying, look, I don't want to be the guy who takes care of, you know, searching the players and, and being the manager. I want to be a head coach. I want to be what my contract says, which is manage the players. And that's where the results suffered because he was managing too much. He realized that his responsibilities on the, in a club were too big. And I think he was trying to say to Bowley, no, it's too much. And I, I need to be cut down because otherwise something's gonna get affected. So from, that's at least from my perspective that Thomas Tuchel was given too much, too much responsibility on, on this. I mean, you can't, you can't ask a manager to also be a sports director. That, that is like a lot to ask of him. And yeah, okay, I think eventually had it come to the point where there was still the same issue going into like just pre-World Cup, I think the decision would have, I would have probably understood why, um, you know, the man, basically the ownership would have decided to sack him. But that's basically based on the transfer window being closed, right? Okay, now I can focus on team performance, you know, the, the players but then afterwards you got a problem with the reports that he lost the dressing room and then you're like okay well you could that also be in part you know due to basically the club well the ownership giving you much bigger of a role and then your head is just exploded with so many different things to do that you're just overworking yourself 
And so you lose the dressing room. You don't know which subs to bring on, you know, because you want someone to turn the game around and you're not, your head is not thinking straight, maybe. And yeah, I mean, maybe that's probably why this situation ended up the way it did. And it's unfortunate. But if you look at it from the ownership perspective, the ownership perspective is, look, we gave you 300 million. We want communication. We want, you know, we want basically you to say to us, okay, what is it that you want with, with that amount? What, what is it that you think will help take this to the next level? And I also remember the time when Tuchel said, you know, I must check. He was basically saying that because he missed the guy, he wanted the guy who took on that responsibility of a sporting director who, where he didn't need to speak to the ownership constantly. Someone he could rely on to basically take care of being his representative to the board. That's what works so well for him, having a representative to the board. And I think that's the mistake that Bully will probably realize later on if he hasn't already, because obviously like within a week or two and sometimes you realize, okay, maybe it might not have been the smartest of decisions, but sometimes you got to take back and reflect, okay, what went right? What went wrong? What do I do this time? What do I do not do next time? So do you think it's fair to say that in all this, Tuchel is probably more of a victim of circumstance given everything going on? Yeah, I would probably say he was more of a victim of circumstance. Exactly. So do you feel that, um, but let's say this, do you think it's maybe a good thing then for Tuchel that like, obviously we don't want to say it's a good thing he got sacked for him, but do you think maybe, and this is a silver lining of him being sacked is that he's going to be in, in a better situation that suits him more that, um, and maybe, maybe if you say, if we went this whole season, we got a director of football after the transfer window, we sorted this out, maybe Tuchel step, gets a step down a little bit more and gets rid of the responsibilities. Do you think that maybe if he did lose the dressing room, and I would say towards the end of his last days, it definitely did seem like the players, even someone like Mount, seemed very off, very like their attitudes had changed in game. If even if we had gotten a sporting director solved, um, Tuchel got to take less responsibilities. He got to focus more on the team. Do you think he would have been able to win back the dressing room and kind of improve the performances? It's difficult because you have to try and see if there are managers that have been able to do that. I obviously cannot point to anything like that because I don't really recall if there has any uh, been any. But it doesn't mean that there hasn't been situations in the past in other teams where a manager has probably lost the dressing room and managed to gain it back. It's not an impossible task. I mean, we know that Tuchel is an extraordinary manager and who, who's obviously known for communicating with his players. So is it possible that he's able to do so? Who knows? But the fact is, is that it's very difficult to know until you try. And until you're in the situation to actually see, okay, is there a way that those players would be able to forgive him? And in which sense? That's the difficulty is that we'll never know. A lot of, yeah, that is a huge thing is that a lot of what we say is simply 
perspective and thoughts based on quotes that we get, especially considering we got like an overwhelming amount of information and quotes as soon as Tuchel got sacked. Almost like everyone in the media had been given like a little locked box of information and said, break open in case of Tuchel sacking. And then all of a sudden, all this stuff starts coming out. So, and I guess it's maybe, um, you could say it's to protect Tuchel. Like nobody wants to add fuel to the fire because it's definitely not going to help Um, because it doesn't help the fan base. It doesn't help the players who are obviously, we're in a much different generation compared to back in the early 2000s. Um, kind of when um, Abramovich took in, social media is a huge thing. It's unavoidable. Even the older players at this point are fairly um, sufficient when it comes to using social media and seeing stuff. Now, not everybody is always on their phone, always searching up their names to see what's happening. But this kind of stuff in the media is like, you can't keep it away from players, especially like um, from players like Mason Mount, Reese James, that whole type of generation now that we have. So, um, and maybe I wonder if they knew, I, I wonder, like, obviously they're more exposed to Tuchel than any of us, but I wonder if they even knew kind of what, all this stuff that was going on between Tuchel and Bully. Cause certainly they were been able to see like the difference attitude with Tuchel, but I wonder if they really knew kind of like the breaking downs behind the scene. See, sometimes it's not that easy to know because I think when you work under somebody, let's say you work under somebody, right? And the attitudes change. Sometimes you'll always have one perspective. You'll never be able to truly understand unless you have a conversation with them and they're willing to be open about it. Like, unless they're willing to be open about it and, you know, have a conversation with you about what's happened, you know, it's going to be hard to really know. And, and to be honest, from the reaction of the players, it didn't feel like they knew. Because you could see the amount of statements that were coming out and none of them, but like the, the expression of shock or that they were portraying didn't seem like they expected this. Yeah, and I would definitely say not that it's a big deal, but something was a little shocking was um, after Tuka was sacked, kind of you had a lot of talk on social media about the lack of like thank yous and like how they were worded um, on social media from some of the players. And, and it felt like, I don't know if they were trying to be respectful or if they were just in a state of shock, but it was just like, they, it seemed like they were very detached from the situation already. And I wonder like if they saw it coming because, um, and we, I think we heard, and I don't know if this was hundred percent confirmed, but that regardless of the Zagra's result, even if we had won, um, maybe if it was an overwhelming win, it could have changed things. But regardless of the result, I think Bully had decided to sack Tuchel before that game. But in that game, I th- it looked like a very, I don't want to call it a desperate attempt, but just like a very odd move from Tuchel with the lineup and then certain decisions like bringing Ziyech for in for a whole half, putting Mount in the pivot, like in the initial lineup, because I think he had started next to... I think he had started next to Kovacic, didn't he, in that game, in the pivot? That's that's a good question. I have I to look it up. Remember, that's uh, that's how far well, I, uh, I I don't even remember because I was basically flying on that game. I was flying back to London, so I don't even remember what the lineup was. Uh, yes, okay, I have it right here. So he had 
the lineup was Keppa, which we knew because Mendy was hurt. Yes. Reese, Chilwell, Koulibaly, Fofana. So that's a back five is normal. Well, sorry, hold on. Reese, Chilwell, Koulibaly, Fofana, Aspi. And then Mount Kovacic was the midfield. And Aubameyang, Kai, and Sterling. Now, to me, so Mount was in that pivot because that's a two-man pivot. It's pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, but something that was kind of surprising to me was that he had started Aubameyang right after he had gotten fitted for a mask. And you knew what he was hurt. And you've actually seen the quotes from Aubameyang that he's he's not 100%. And- but he was ready to go. That's the thing. He said he was ready to go. Even if he's not 100%, he's ready to go. And the thing is, he didn't like he didn't play the full game either. Um, he yeah, was he 59 off. minutes for Bro- yeah, Bro- I mean, came, to be fair. Like, you can play that much if you're not 100% fit, yeah. And I don't know, it just seems shocking to me that he would start Mount the pivot because we know Mount is a very versatile player, but it seems like I don't know, it's just these are such uncharacteristic moves. And like, in the game against Zagreb, I, I really felt like we didn't need to have like a fully stacked offense. And sit back. I mean, having Asby in the lineup, I thought was not a very good choice. And he came out at half, which seemed really odd for me because it's just like, if, well, if he was going to come out at half, like, what was the whole point of putting him in at all? Because surely with Koulibaly and Fofana, that's a back four that you can go with. And I think if I look at the substitutes, we even had Chalaba at the back. And surely you, I mean, Fofana, not super experienced Champions League, Koulibaly, Plenty of experience. You got Reese James and Chilwell who've got experience in the Champions League. And I maybe you could say it's because Jorginho didn't start the game and we had to have our captain or a captain figure on there. And yeah. I'm starting to get a little tired of that excuse or that reasoning, even if it's a true reasoning. But the, no, but the thing is, you didn't have Thiago Silva either. Yeah. You didn't have N'Golo Kante, who, by the way, was the fourth captain. On the yeah. roster, right? He, he's so after that, option. I mean, I, there, there isn't really any player that has been designated captain of proper probably Mason Mount. I would say that would be yeah, the fifth pip I got at the moment, like uh, according to history, by the way, I'm basing it off history. But, you know, I think the thing is, is that generally, if you're playing a game, unless, you know, there is no other way and fitness is not allowing them to, you've got to have either your captain, your vice captain or both. You've got to have them on the pitch. Otherwise, why the heck are they there? And see, that that kind of just gives me more reasoning why I think it's right time for Asby and probably even Jorginho to move on in a role because if that is the case, and I do believe that it, there is substance to that argument that you always should have your captain on the field or at, at least your vice captain, if not both of them on there. But if we're at this point to where we're using that reasoning to force Asby or Jorginho into the lineup when both of them have had awful seasons so far and or both and Asby um almost was out the door this um this summer we saw that he wanted to go but it kind of collapsed due to just poor uh, poor structuring and poor um management um time-wise and saving Fofana till the very end so Aspie's decided to commit to us for a little bit longer just in case we weren't able to secure it um and Jorginho I think they thought Jorginho was maybe even going to discuss a new contract whether it's a short-term or another long-term contract and he just has had a bad season. He's had some decent moments, but overall I would say the performances from him has been pretty poor. And that's like given a big spotlight to why we have an issue in midfield. So 
I I probably have Toronto up over here. I don't think Jorginho has had a bad season. You so don't think far. so? I don't think so. I think the only bad game, like the worst game he's had, I think so far this season for me was against West Ham. That to me is probably the only game. Uh, like you've got that one. I'm trying to remember. Was he bad against the Leeds? Not really. Well, I would think we were all fairly bad up against the Leeds. Yeah, I think in, in general, like you know, then I'll against say this, Southampton, I'll say this in I mean, he was good against Southampton, but you, know, I mean, like it's it's not all his responsibility either, right? But he also hasn't had an ideal midfield partnership at all this season with Kovacic exactly. being hurt. So that's fair, but I would say even in our with, strongest wait, 11... Wait, with who being hers? Kosic. Kosic has been oh, hurt yeah. for most of the yeah, season, yeah, yeah. I believe. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I heard Pulisic for some reason. No, My bad. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I would say that definitely is part of it because I think... Uh, what is, has it been between Gallagher and uh, Ruben yeah, that been... he's had the most to work with this season? So... Let's let's go back and, to the start and maybe of the it's season. not easy to, to give a direct so, answer. Without start of seeing. the season, he has Kante against Everton, which was great. Against was great. Uh, Tottenham, he has Mount and Kante. Kante goes off injured against Spurs. Against Leeds, he has Gallagher and Mount, which obviously is that famous three pairing that also where we saw the four 0 loss against Arsenal. If you remember, yeah. Um, against uh, Leicester, it was Gallagher who got sent off. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. Um, against Southampton, he had Loftus Cheek. Against West Ham, uh, I think well, he didn't even back. start. He didn't even start that game. Who who was the pivot in that one? It was. Um, it, well, actually, it wasn't a pivot. It was a three. It was Gallagher, Kovacic, who were the center mids. And then the deeper of the two uh, of the three was Loftus-Cheek. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I yeah. How did we win that? Yeah. Um, then you had Zabgreb, and his he didn't even start that game. Uh, but it was obviously Kovacic and Mount in the pivot. And then in Salzburg, he was obviously was Mount and Kovacic. So he was favorite was Kovacic, basically. Yeah. So wait, did you say Mount and Kovacic, or did you say Jorginho you know it was Jorginho Mount and Kovacic? Oh right. Uh, obviously, Mount would sometimes drive forward, you know, at times. So yeah, I mean, yeah, he yeah, was more I, of an eight in that one. Yeah. So I would say, okay, maybe Jorginho hasn't had an awful season. Um, maybe it's unfair to say that. I think he definitely has had bad moments though, but. It's also take it into perspective. The whole team has really not had great performances to say you can really say Georgina has been much worse than everybody else. I, I think that's fair. So yeah. going back to the argument about the captains is I think it's getting to the point though. Georgina is not a player. You start every game now though. He's a player that you, you would use selectively almost like you would with Conte now. No, I I'd probably say Conte you use selectively because injury wise, it makes sense. It completely makes sense on that front. But I think when it comes to Jorginho, it's... But is he not looking See, the thing is, I think we look, we look generally better as a better team when he's on the pitch. You know, with... I, I just feel like maybe it's... I'm, I'm trying to basically explain this. So for me, it's 
Part of it, the reasoning is the leadership presence that he offers in midfield. The, the other part is the fact that he has good passing decisions. Yes, sometimes people will say, oh, he's too slow, he passes sideways. But he always tries to find players that are in space or that tries to make runs. That's the thing. That's the sort of like connections that he always has been going for ever since he joined from Napoli. And ever since people have been saying, oh, you know, this guy only passes sideways. Like, let's be honest. I mean, whenever he joined, everyone, like it's, he's already been, always been polarizing. And there are some reasons to it. Some people think he's slow. Something people like think that basically he's not a defensive minded, you know, midfielder who's not a natural CDM, but let's be honest, we haven't had a natural-minded CDM. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, holding midfielder. Natural-minded CDM, one. of course. That's like but Matic. We haven't had an actual, you know, holding midfielder since the days of Matic, and we actually brought one on loan, you know, from Juventus for the first time since then in Dennis Zakaria. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, yes, okay, since, you know, Matic left, probably Jorginho has been our deepest player. You know, the player who's been in the deepest positions, the one who has been linking with the centre-backs, who sometimes who would drop into centre-back positions to allow the centre-backs to push up. And that's what Jorginho offers. He, offer, he offers cover to say, look, you go up, okay, fine, I'm going to cover for you. I'll take the responsibility. That's what I like about Jorginho. But then you're like, okay, well, he needs to leave. Okay, fine. Offer me an alternative. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say Jorginho first out before saying he should leave. Yeah. But also, you got to remember that even though he is kind of a holding midfielder, he really hasn't been able to provide much defensively unless he's already in the right position at the right time. Because when you've, you've seen plenty of times, like when teams are on the counter against us, they just dribble around him. I, I, Jorginho actually has good defensive stats when you look over the past few years in terms of interceptions and tackles, but most of the time that's when like his pivot partner is already back and like covering like say, and he's already kind of in the right position at the right time, but Jorginho necess- isn't necessarily great when it comes See, to covering for pu- I people think pushing when up. it comes to Jorginho, what he generally tends to do when it comes to counters is that he tries to prevent the player with the ball who's starting to make a run towards goal. He's trying to make sure that that player doesn't decide, doesn't get past them with the ball and goes in through fully. That the player has to make a pass to, to your teammate who's on the counter to do so. So when it's a 2v1 situation against Jorginho, it's a lot more difficult. When it's a 1v1 situation, Jorginho will make sure that that player has to dribble past him to go to basically move further up the pitch. That's the thing about Jorginho. So yes, maybe he's not perfect, you know, but let's be honest, not every player is perfect. Oh. We, we all know that. <laughs> but that's the thing about him is that he will do what he can to make sure that even despite the fact that he's not a physical player, that the player does not run straight towards goal and goes on one-on-one be the goalkeeper. He will do the best he can to make sure that doesn't happen. In a 1v1 situation, he will make sure that that player who has the ball will try to dribble past him. If it's a 2v1 situation, it's a lot more difficult because then, you know, unless 
you know, the player knows where his teammate is, you know, he's basically a situation where, okay, well, I know where you, I know you're trying to go for me. You know, do I dribble you or do I pass to my teammates? He wants to make the opponent think, you know, and then by that stage, hopefully he steals the ball and make sure that the counter doesn't happen. Sometimes that doesn't always happen because the player that goes on the counter actually realizes, you know, I planned for this. I've got a teammate right next to me. I'm going to pass it to him. That's exactly what happened against Salzburg. Against Salzburg, Jorginho knew that, you know, it was either he could either stay in the position he was or try to block the passing lane where, um, where that, I don't know which player it was, but where that Salzburg player was going to go towards and one towards goal. So <laughs> by moving out of position, he basically opens up a passing opportunity though. And so obviously from there is for Thiago Silva's responsibility to take over and make sure that the player then who gets the next ball, he, he basically gets the ball from him and either, you know, puts it out for a throw in and all that. Thiago Silva completely misses that. So then it's a situation where, okay, well, you know, I've beaten Thiago Silva. I can pass the ball. Aspi misreads it completely. The, the, um, the strikers, Adamu, as I recall, you know, he misreads Adamu's run and it ends up as a 1-1 goal. So that's the thing about Jorginho. Yes, there are times where, you know, you can be frustrated, but you've got to understand what the guy is trying to do for the team. I would say definitely he's always trying. He's always got good intentions. Um, but at a certain point, like <laughs> if we're trying to force him into the team, like for a captain's sake, um, and because he is the most defensive midfielder, I understand we've been playing him for so long because we really have no other defensive midfielder. But now that we have Zakaria, I I really hope that Potter actually tries to use Zakaria. I have no idea what Potter necessarily prefers in terms of a midfield. Now, I guess this is a good opportunity for us to start talking more about Potter than we did for Tuchel. Now, mm. I from my experience or from when I'm watching Brighton and what I've seen kind of just on a thread of his past games, he normally favors a three to five at the back with three in midfield or two in midfield. Um, and then either two strikers or um, kind of three wingers. And it, what I've seen on average is it feels like he likes three center backs or at least one very natural center back in the middle and one or two hybrid center backs, how we saw Cucurella. Um, in the Salzburg game playing as left center back. And then he likes to have um, kind of where a recent chill world would be more like left mid, right mid, kind of have one wing back and then one more winger, it feels like. And I think that's how we saw Sterling on the left. And we saw Reese on the right. Um, and then he had, I believe we said was a mid three, correct? A mid three with two up top. So we saw Mount and Kovacic as... Uh, did we see Mount and Kovacic in? Yeah, they were they the were eights? basically the eights. Yeah. So I'm looking at the oh sorry, Jorginho is uh, at the very bottom of this lineup for some reason. The way I look at it at the match day center. Um, so Jorginho was at the base of that. Now I'm one thing I do like going forward is that we saw Mount in a much more midfield role. I think that's gonna be a lot better for in term and he had a good game. I thought he had a good game. I think we're going to see a better trend 
from Mount in terms of that. I also like that if the fact that he used that in his first game, and maybe, you know what, maybe since it's the first game, it's more of a one-off, we shouldn't read too much into that as that's how he will be going forward. And I think um, in episodes um, in October, we'll be able to say if that was a one-off or if that is um, what he, his style I will can tell be you like. right now, it's probably going to be a one-off. You think so? So what, tell me what, Let's, let what me do you think Potter is going to be explain how I see a Graham Potter because I tried to analyze him in the Brighton days, not just based on that game against Chelsea. So for me, what I see with Graham Potter, I see a manager who obviously is very much of a one at the back sort of like manager who can either play like a one at the back with basically with two center backs or one center back. The, the advantage with Fofana is that he isn't a player that you can just play a center back. You can also play a right back, which is why, for example, like if you play a back three and you have this one at the back sort of mentality, you can have either Thiago Silva or Koulibaly in there paired up with Fofana, for example. And obviously, as we know, if from his Brighton days, Cucurella would be at left center back. So left, that will be basically the main situation over there. Now, from there, in terms of the midfield, I'm going to exclude the wing backs for now. The midfield is very much a box. So it's a pivot with two players further upfield being the cans. And they form a shape of a box. So basically, they want to control the middle area of the pitch. You know, that's, that's very much what it is. And so th this is why, for example, in the game against uh, Salzburg, what's, what was very key for, um, <laughs> for basically uh, Potzer was, okay, man-to-man -man marking. What was Salzburg playing? They were playing a 4-3-1-2. So, or what you will call a 4-1-2 or 4-4-2 diamonds, right? What he did is that he lined up the players in midfield in a more diamond manner to go man-to-man. -man. So what it was actually was a 3-5-1-1 formation where Havertz took care of the DM, Kovacic and Mount took care of the center mids, and then Susic, which was obviously the cam, Jorginho took care of. He, they went man-to-man -man in that sense. Now, obviously, then you have the two centre-backs. Um, sorry, you'd have the two strikers. Um, and, you know, depending on how it would go, sometimes you'd actually have a back four where Cucurella would basically go further left and then Reeves would basically be on the right side and then drop deeper. And so the, the advantage there is that there was a bit more flexibility on that front. He likes to be very flexible. He's not going to stick to one specific type of formation. That's something we've seen with Tuchel, but he's a bit more flexible than that. So it's very clear that Cucurella, you know, will be dominating that left area, you know, of the pitch. And then Reese James will probably be on the right if, if it shapes up into a back four, which will most likely from there shape up into a four, two, three, one. Now, I know that's a lot of information. So, you know, <laughs> for, for some of the viewers, it might be a bit confusing. Um, but I think quite simply, if, if you want to remember anything, the reason why he set up this way in a 3-5-1-1 is because of the midfield and making sure that the midfield was man-to-man. -man. Now, I still expect the wingbacks to be the same, Sterling and Rhys James. 
I still expect, you know, Cucurella to be at left center back. The question will remain as to who will be the two, the two remaining center backs in that three. And from there, it's going to be very much based on, okay, how is the opposition shaping up when it comes to the midfield? Because it could be that you have a pivot again, and then you have Mount and Hartford who basically play in more forward areas rather than play like rather than Mount being in an eight role. So do you think with if we face a team kind of with a low block, you're going to see less of like kind of a Mount dropping into defense and trying to see if we push them more up against? Yes, the I think that's more likely. Okay. I think that's that's very likely, and I also think like let's say they play a four four two. As an example, like Burnley stop. I well, think what's possible, possible is that they'll switch. He'll basically say, "Okay, I'm going to switch to a four-two-three-one approach when I attack." That which is what he generally does. He likes to switch to a four-two-three-one approach. So we have Reese Cucurella as the fullbacks. You know, he'll have um, Sterling obviously as the left winger when when they go up and attack. Um, so basically, you will definitely have one of the attacking wingers there. Then it's pretty much, okay, well, who are going to be the two um, other players on that flank? Who's going to basically be the player that is going to be a bit more right-sided and the one who's more central? And then from there, it's going to be, okay, the pivots is probably going to be roughly consistent because you want them to get the chemistry to play as much games as possible. So do you see Jorginho Kovacic being that pivot probably the most likely? See, that's, that's where I don't know, because obviously Potter will see the training and see, okay, this is what this player's offers for my team. Do I use him or not? Now, that's a lot more tricky, I think. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I still don't have an opinion on that. And that's, that, for me, just raises the, concern, the, the issues because you're like, okay, well, you got, you got Jorginho, Kovacic, Zakaria, Loftus-Cheek, Gallagher, that can be in those positions, right? That's five players. I don't know for certain what Graham Potter is looking for in that pivot. That's, my, that's the main thing that I think people should be focusing on is, okay, what does he want in the pivot? Because I don't think people are, that's, that's also why people are saying, okay, I'm confused. What exactly does he want? And wouldn't you think there's probably a higher chance we're going to end up seeing Jorginho more? Because if we have a kind of system where we have one um, center back um, or even two lying a bit further back, and then we have you know, maybe Cucurella or, and Fofana pushing a little further up to be progressive with the ball, there's a very low chance we're going to see a Spelliqueta in that back three just um, for in terms of having the tracking back and the, the, um, the ground he would have to cover. So in terms of having one of our captains in there, it probably is going to be a likely chance we see a lot of Jorginho um, going forward in his pivot, wouldn't you say? I do think Jorginho will be in there. And I think this, the case when he won't be is when he needs to be rested. And that's when Zakaria will come in. So I probably think Jorginho will play a lot more. Um, and I don't think that will change on the potter. I do wonder like who's going to be the pivot. I mean, obviously rotation is going to have to be key. If Kante is back before the international break, which I hope he is, um, it's going to have to, obviously, Kovacic and Kante will have to be rotated. If he's not fit, which would surprise me, um, 
obviously Gallagher will have to be in contention over there. And, and yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it shapes up. It is early Doyle's though, still. That's the thing. And you can never be certain as to how it's going to shape out. One thing I would note is that in defense, Potter shapes up in a 3-5-2. In attack, he likes to go for a 4-2-3-1 shape. On balance, on paper, it might look like a 3-4-2-1. That doesn't mean that on paper, it's actually going to be the case when it attacks or defends. I think that's the key thing to remember. Yeah, and something you can kind of mention before how Fofana is good at, at shifting to the right. Um, so in a kind of three at the back, you can see Cucurella, um, Kolobali, and Fofana. And I definitely think there is a good chance that when it shifts into a 4-2-3-1, you maybe see Fofana and Kolobali kind of hang in the back more, and then you see Cucurella kind of pushing up on that left side. Yeah. Um, so it... And this kind of brings an interesting argument because also another thing you said how sometimes he has a lone center back hanging at the back more. Tiago Silva is probably our best defender we have, like in terms of just, I wouldn't say ability, I would just say experience, leadership, and quality. Um, but one thing we obviously know he doesn't, he's not great at is his pace or his endurance if having to track mm. back a lot. So leaving him as a lone center back can kind of seem like an interesting question considering that he would have the most ground probably to track back or not, sorry, not to track back because the one, the ones pushing forward would have to track back the most, but on the counter, he might be, have to be the one that has to shift the most to, to cover whoever is on the counter. And he's the bet. I would say he's the best at distribution, but do you think you could see Koulibaly taking a lot of game time and being that lone center back? If we see Kukurela, at left center back a lot more. I definitely see Cucurella, no doubt, being at left center back a lot more. Um, the question is, see, the thing is, I, I saw Thiago Silva against Salzburg, and he was really impressive. You know, that game, he was really, really good, and he showed that despite his age, he was exceptional. Um and obviously, that was a system that was a one-at-the-back approach. And that was against a team that had, you know, pacey players that could play on the counter. And he dealt with that pretty well. The only time he made a grave error, it led to the goal. I wouldn't even say that was a huge error itself. I would say the tackle itself looked like it was fairly successful. And it, he almost got away with the ball. I think that the player he was just going against was a lot more quick to react than he was to be able to get off the ground. But um, yeah, it looked more well, like I he do, wanted I do think, to... though, he misread, like, he, he missed the ball up to me. Uh, from what I can see, like, in the replays, he missed the ball. Yeah. It could be in reaction. I might have to look back. But to, from my perspective, at least, he missed the ball. From the way I saw it, I thought he was looking more trying to win the ball back in position more than just clear it out. And maybe he should have gone with more of a clearance one. I definitely would say I'd put more blame on Aspilicueta than Silva because Aspi's defending. I, he was clearly the only one mark, marking the defender, but he wasn't even marking him. He even saw him. He You saw his head on a swivel. So it was kind of shocking to me that he really didn't close in on him much. But, I mean, there's not too much point in focusing in on that. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, look, I, I think obviously uh, I'll make it very brief. Obviously, it wasn't, I, I don't lay the blame just on Aspi or Tiago Silva. You know, Jorginho 
Cucurella, Kovacic for losing the ball. You know, there's a lot of blame that can be shared in, in that area. But yeah, let's move on. Let's move on. And I will say that a, a lot of, um, I feel like a lot of the goals that we will concede um, with Potter, I am anticipating are going to be from counters because I am anticipating a very high pressing, very high up the field um, play style from us. So if we concede a lot, I have a feeling it's going to be on the counters more. So definitely mm-hmm. something that concerns me is eliminating the individual mistakes in defending and also a lot more confidence with the keeper. Now, something I want to talk about is Mendy obviously is hurt right now. So we know Kepa is probably going to be starting, but I right. feel like we'll see Mendy come back um, by the time the international break is over. Now we know Kepa is a be- better distributor, but he's not a great distributor. But we also saw a lot maybe about how I, uh, we, our keeper would operate under Potter because you saw how much off the line Kepa was, almost like a uh, basically a sweeper keeper. Do you have a feeling that Kepa will earn more minutes under um, under Potter than Mendy, provided we don't start losing every game under him or conceding a bunch? I, I think there's a lot of people that at the start, like basically towards the... Um, like for some time, have been saying that Kepa has to leave. Um, I haven't really been one of those supporters. I haven't, I haven't really been, you know, on that side because I've been, look, I, I've had, it, like, even though it was at a minor level, very minor level, uh, I've had experiences of what it's like to be a goalkeeper and the intensity, the demand, the pressure of being one is is difficult it's like whenever you make a mistake and it goes in the net all the responsibility goes on you you know there are players that will basically say you know put the lay the blame on you rather than take a responsibility and that you know puts add more pressure so i think when it comes to keppa and i saw him on the two call he performed a lot better on the two call and I saw his performances in the games and I'm still, I'm still like, I even remember the club World cup, you know, he was, he was really good. And the fact is to me, I keeper to start a final. It's like, well, no, it's about the performance. And the fact is, you know, at that time, Mendy came back from an AFCON and, you know, he, he had to, he was going to come back to, you know, Like, obviously, like him coming back straight in, you know, might, might be a bit tricky. And the thing is, not only that, ever since he came back, Mendy, from AFCON, he hasn't looked the same. He hasn't performed the same. He hasn't felt like he has been the Mendy that we know. And so when I look at Kepa, you know, yeah, okay, it happens to make one error like that. I mean... Sometimes, like I, I, I did see the goal. I mean, obviously it bounced, and like when you expect the ball to go somewhere, and you it completely bounces, and then you know it deflects. Sorry, should I say? And it goes, you know, towards goal, and you didn't see that coming. You know, you try to react to that, and by that stage, it's too late. So yeah, that can happen. But I look at his overall performance, the distribution. He's he is him being a sweeper keeper. And I look at Robert Sanchez for Brighton, who behaves in the same way. And I think Kepa, unless Mendy basically decides to be more of a sweeper keeper, which 
you know, at his age, it's going to be difficult. I do think that we could see more game time from Kepa, but ultimately the decision will lie with Graham Potter, as usual, because he's the manager. But if you're saying to me right now, <laughs> obviously, like if I'm manager today and I'm picking over Kepa and Mendy, I'd be more inclined at the moment to pick Kepa because he has the attributes of what I'm looking for. Now, let me ask you this kind of just kind of a perspective. Now, unless Mendy gets his confidence back, I really can't see him getting the starting job too much because one, he's not making saves. Like he was, his main attribute was he was a shot stopper, but he's losing that. He's not had confidence to command his box and he's not a great distributor in itself. And I would say Kepa, I, I, I have to interrupt you there. I mean, I remember there have been amounts of times in corners, for example, where Mendy has not been commanding in his box and where Kepa himself has actually been. And in the box. Yeah, no, I, I, sorry. I thought that's what I said. Maybe it said something different. Um, okay. But yeah, so um. I would say I don't think Mendy has anything that he's shown really to say why Keppa shouldn't have a chance at it. And I think something that I really liked from Keppa was the fact that he stopped a long shot. That was a huge criticism we've had for Keppa for a while. But he had a top, top corner shot that was definitely going in, I think, that he managed to stop. And that's something we've been very critical about him um, about because that's something we worry about because it's definitely a strategy to take more long shots when you have a keeper who is shorter but we know that not every keeper who's shorter will be bad um because i believe it's jan summer uh the keeper for Borussia Mönchengladbach, is actually kept his height or an inch shorter but he's been probably one of the better keepers i would say in the world for the past couple of years so kepa has the ability to improve and the fact that he stopped a shot like that shows me maybe he is improving so i'm definitely giving kepa the benefit of the doubt but um yeah let me say this Unless we saw Kepa start keeping a lot of clean sheets or just overall was a much better keeper, obviously, than Mendy, what do you see being more likely in, I would say, the summer? Because I don't think this is a more January question. Do you think Potter would name Kepa the number one and then Mendy the number two? Or do you think he would try and find a different keeper who fits maybe more analytics that is good um, at, um, sa- at saving shots and good with his feet? I think it's too soon to say. Probably too soon. Um, I mean. The main problem is that the criticisms that I've seen to target towards Kepa about the fact that he couldn't save long shots, about the fact that basically he couldn't, um, you know, he couldn't really command his box at the time. Has now been has now gotten shifted from Kepa to Mendy. Like I remember the goal against Southampton, the one from outside the box, that from Salisu. Mendy should have saved that he didn't. You know, Mendy also like against Leeds, where he was he could have literally picked up the ball and literally in an error of like a crazy, you know reading of the game I, I don't know where his head went but he basically like decides to try i don't know frantically to try and dribble the player a Cruyff turn, basically yeah exactly and i mean completely messes up and he's like furious with himself and then the game is like you know mentally it's it's gone and then you you can see from the goalkeeper area and it's like 
yeah, I, I honestly think, see, this is where I think there's probably something going on when it comes to the goalkeeping coach. When Czech was around, I think you could see his presence on the goalkeeping coaching. When he was around, you could see it. Now that he's not, I wonder who the goalkeeper coach is because I seem to remember that scene. It's still Hilario. I don't actually know. I believe, I don't know if Hilario is gone, but I do know the goalkeeper coach from Brighton did come with Potter. Um, okay. If the new goalkeeper coach did come with the Brighton, uh, for, well, well, with Potter, sorry, you know, that's obviously going to change some perspective, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see like during that time when Czech left to obviously, you know, before that new goalkeeper coach from that came with Potter, you know, arrived, who was the goalkeeper coach then? Because I think, I'm pretty sure it is Hilario. And I remember when, you know, under Lampard season, you know, Kepa struggled a lot. And guess who was the goalkeeper coach then? Hilario? It was Hilario. So, yeah. So, I, I do think, like, the loss of Czech has impacted Mendy because he has been, obviously, like, very important, uh, I believe, to not only Tuchel, but also the goalkeepers. So, let's see. Let's see what happens there. Uh, obviously, I'm sure the goalkeeping coach will have his own assessments of, of that, of, of basically what you think could happen there. But I do think Kepa will probably get more game time. The question... I have no clue whatsoever. I really don't if if he'll get more game time than Mendy now. I have no idea. Yeah, you make a good point about um, the goalkeeper coach could be um, a good factor in. So, in, like I said, we can't be too reactionary after like one game under Potter and seeing Kepa come back. So, well, it, this is probably a better conversation and questions to be asked more towards the middle of November when we're seeing the World Cup start up and we've had probably about 12, 14 games in the yeah, it's going to be 13 games basically before the World Cup. It's going to yeah. be like twice a week. So yeah, Oof. so it's going to be a lot. So uh, we've talked a little bit about goalkeeper. We haven't talked too much about the attack. So yeah. right now our main features, it feels like, is going to be Aubameyang, Broya, who we've seen come in as a substitute. Kai, it, it remains to be seen what kind of role Kai has under Potter if he's up top or if he really drops into uh, not defense uh, midfield a bit more. Um, Sterling seems to be a little further out wide and based on where Pulisic and Ziyech were thrown in, it seems like they will be more further out wide. Obviously our goals have been an issue because our XG has been incredibly low um, and our finishing just has been very off for even while we were under Tuchel and then um, tonight wasn't very good either. Give me, give me your thoughts on what you hope to see under Potter in terms of um, chance creation and maybe if you think a bombing will be effective or this will just kind of be another dud signing. Oh, uh, chance creation and finishing. Okay. Um, <laughs> this, this is a tricky one because I think this season so far, we've created enough to win games convincingly. The finishing has been our weakest point. I know people will say it's been a mixture of both. I know some people that will completely disagree and say it's just a creation that's been a problem. I disagree with the fact that it's just the finishing. That's just, sorry, that it's just the trans creation. That's a problem. 
for me, fundamentally, we've created a fair amount. It's about sometimes the final pass or the final touch. That's the only two things that I think has been our biggest letdown over the past few months. And when, when I look at Kai Havertz, and it was, it was very interesting to see the game also against Salzburg, what I saw from him is, and, okay. Ugh. All right. Um, there was, I had a conversation with people back on Thursday. And they made interesting points about the fact that you either, you, some players lack the vision of their surroundings. They don't tend to look around for their opponents, you know, before they receive the ball and right after they receive the ball. The problem is there was one midfielder that I know would do that, but the problem he's left in the summer, that's Billy Gilmore. That's the one player that would do that to us. <laughs> That's the only player that I've ever seen do that. If you're wondering why Alex is laughing, it's because he can see my video reaction, and he knows that as soon as he dropped that name, he was going to get a reaction out of me. <laughs> I can see his reaction. He's like, oh, my God. I'm sorry. Go I'm on. sorry. Keep... Proceed. Okay. No, but because the thing is, I remember there was a moment when Kai Havertz receives the ball and he doesn't even know that Bamiang is right behind him. What he does is that he sees with his corner of his eye because he's back to Bamiang. He sees Mount making the run, so he decides to try and make the, uh, the pass to him instead. Instead, you know, if he looked before with his surroundings, he would see that Bamiang right behind him was unmarked. Was, there was a gap. I mean, Okay, it's not a substantial one, but let's be honest, like compared to compact team, honestly, that's a decent gap to try and exploit. And that's the thing. It's like, you've got players like those, like in the field who sometimes don't look around in the surroundings, take a touch, like basically try to control the ball. And then, okay, where is everyone now? You know, where, where are the opposition? Where's my teammates? Where is the vision? And that's the thing. I think the problem with a lot of our attackers and our midfielders is that they don't, they don't use the vision properly as often as we want. And so that's why you see the likes of Ben Shilwell, though, and, and the likes of Reese James performing much better is because they have the vision. They have the foresight. They have the understanding of seeing where everyone is. And I think that's the biggest dilemma when it comes to this team. If you train them to basically say, look, before you receive the ball, or just about before you receive the ball, see where your teammates are, see where the opposition is. Once you receive the ball, see where they are. And that sounds like basic, like footballing IQ 101 that you teach. Exactly. But the, the thing age. is, the only time where I've actually seen it is with Billy Gilmore. And I know, obviously, it's sad that we sold them. You know, it's. I, I obviously there's like, I'm not going to get too much on the discussion because we should focus on the attack, but it's, it's very much key to, to show that what he could have offered to this team could have been something much more beneficial than I think Tuchel realized the problem, I think for Tuchel, and that's the one thing I will probably have to criticize on him is that he liked to, he likes players that are six four or over. 
like unless you're generally world class, which Kante is basically then the exception, because obviously like, you know, he is world class material. Like he prefers players that are within the six foot range and above. And, and so look, what now onto the attack. Now, the thing about Sterling is that he like, Unlike him playing in a wing-back position, I think that suits him well. He likes to dominate the wide space, and that's perfect for him because under Guardiola, he would do that. And then he would basically try, and he has that freedom on that left side to make that area his own. And that's what he likes. He loves that. He enjoys that. He thrives in those situations. And I'm really, really happy for that. Aubameyang is difficult. I don't know how easy it's going to be played. I'm not 100% sure what his best role is. I'm, I'm wondering if his best role is a poacher. But the problem is he's not exactly in the box all the time. I see the ball being crossed to the far post, you know, for someone like, you know, if it's basically on, on the left-hand side for Reem Sterling to get to. And if it's on the right, it's for someone like... Um, yeah Yeah, it's it's back post crosses so the problem is it's not really going to come from the crosses then it's got to come through the middle of the pitch and when you don't have a player like Havert supplying it the right way then it's going to be hard for him to even create like get chances get opportunities so that needs to be fixed first that's where I understand when people saying chance creation is is not at the level it should be I get that but those are the things that need to be improved on first. Secondly, once he gets those sorts of balls, I do think 1v1, he, I mean, he's pretty decent. I mean, he's been decent against, you know, at, uh, at Barcelona. I do rate his chances at succeeding as long as the supply is done right. Now, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, I think this was the Zagreb game and not the Salzburg game. And Mount had a good uh, couple uh, passes from deep into midfield that broke the lines, I believe, on counters for Aubameyang. And I think they had two main key chances um, on goal. But you saw one, he pretty much just scuffed. And then another one, he went more for an unselfish pass rather than just taking the shot on himself. And I feel like I've seen that same kind of thing with Kai, that he thinks more about a a final pass rather than taking just a shot and then like hoping for a good rebound um, in itself. Does that worry you at all um, that a bombing was starting to do that? Like, or do you think it's just first game jitters maybe and just trying to make a good impression? It could be first game jitters. It could also be the fact that maybe he was thinking a teammate would be in a better position to score. And he was saying, okay, I'm going to make that pass there. I don't remember the situation because obviously I, I, didn't, I didn't really watch the game, I'll be honest. Like it was very hard for me to watch the game. Was um, that the one you were so, flying, you said? Yeah, I, I was okay. flying that game, so I couldn't really tell that much. Okay. I'll, I'll look in more in future games to see those what you're talking about. You know, if that does happen again, I'll probably have a better perspective then. But my guess is, you know, he will try to be a team player. He will try to be hopefully a leader, but he is new to the club. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one thing to also keep in mind. He's a, he's with new teammates, and there will be new ex- different expectations for him. So it will be interesting to see. But the thing about Kai Havertz is that 
I think a lot of fans are getting to the point where it's like, okay, what do we do with this guy? Because like he hasn't, I remember that there was a stat um, on that Salzburg game. Um, let me see if I can remember what it was. I mean, he, if I remember correctly, he basically was barely involved in the game. Um, he, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he had zero triples completed, zero key passes, zero shots in the first half, not much more in the second. And was that in the Salzburg game? That was the Salzburg game. I thought yeah, that, that was might Salzburg. have been the Zagreb game. No, that was the Salzburg one. And because I thought he actually you... had, I thought people said that he did decent in Salzburg because he was dropping a lot more um, into midfield. I, yeah, I he was dropping wrong. into pockets, but at the same time, when he had the ball, like off the ball movements, I can't really complain too much. The on the ball movements, that's where I was disappointed by. And so when I look at that, I basically think there's still more that he needs to offer. And my concern when it comes to Kai Havertz is that he needs he needs to light up his you know of off his backside basically, and I've seen that happen when he's come off the bench, but I haven't really seen that sort of like push and desire and you know that sort of you know fighting spirit when he generally starts the game. That's my concern. And when you pay 75 million for a player, you don't pay that much just for him to sit on the bench. You pay him for him to play. So it makes you wonder, okay, well, you know, we we bought him for a reason, right? We we didn't buy him just, you know, because he's an extraordinary talent. He has to be played in a certain way. He has to be played in a way that works as well for the team. I would so, argue, though, that how Chelsea was doing business uh, like a year ago or so, um, mm-hmm. that when Kai did come in, they were kind of making some acquisitions without a clear-cut plan. So he kind of looked like one of those players that was a little versatile, multifaceted, that they just hope would mm-hmm. fit some certain way. I don't, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say they already had a plan when they got him. No, I, I do understand that. And, and I will also say that, to me, the reason why he was signed is because he's a Roman signing. Uh, to make sure that he didn't go to the likes of Real Madrid or Barcelona or, or anything like that. So it was definitely a board signing. But the fact is, is that you're here for two years, like more than two years. You've got to offer, like, you, you got to show that basically, okay, this player is going to offer something in the future for us. Oh, absolutely. Like, Eventually, like I said before, if, if that doesn't happen, then goal, what's he, the point? He would get so much. He would be one of the most hated players at this point if he never scored that UCL goal. I'm very convinced. Yes, no, I, mean, I do think like he could be uh, one of them. And, and that's the thing. It's like very much a case of, okay, well, the thing what I like about Potter is that he has, he's known as a player, as a person, sorry, who is able to understand players and communicate with them in the right way. He also has a degree a master's degree in emotional intelligence, which, I mean, I don't think anyone expected would help uh, at the time or, or basically be, be of benefit because, um, because, you know, obviously there's a difference between education and application. But yeah, it's, it's very interesting that it's actually applied and helped and, you know, benefited um, 
but I think to me, obviously, yes, the off the ball movement has been good, has been much better by Kai Havertz. He has been trying to find pockets of space. Now, I would say that um, he has never been in a super favorable role uh, under Tuchel's system. But at the same time, I don't think he's ever showed that one role suits him better than any other. Like, I think, like as many people say, I think the most common denominator about when he's best is a second striker partnership where he's not the main man. He's kind of the man behind the main man. And he, he does a lot of dirty work and does a lot of job to help him out. And I think a good trend is that, and um, I think it noticed it a little under Tuchel at the end, but also Potter's, uh, how he set up against Salzburg, is that we're starting to play with more two men up top rather than like uh, three people up top with normally one striker and then two wingers or two hybrid midfielders. And I think if we see Kai and someone like Broya, or Kai and Aubameyang up top more often. I do think it, we might see a trend for Kai, but I think we, it remains to be said. We definitely have to like see more performances and more a better sample um, size of, of how Potter really lines us up. Um, mm. I'm not writing Kai off yet. I definitely think he has incredible untapped potential that he could utilize. Yeah. I definitely yeah. just think it's hard to really steer mm. him in a direction considering we've tried him in so many directions, but none of them really have ever had some clear outlier saying, Oh, that is absolutely where he has to be. You know, I think all we know for certain yeah, I, I is that when Lampard played him as a I, midfielder, it didn't work out that well. And he just did better when he was further up top. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, I agree that basically him being behind the striker is generally, you know, a very good position for him, but it, it's also very difficult because it's, it never felt like he can nail down a specific position and make his own. I know, obviously, a lot of people would hope that that's to happen, but then afterwards, people would complain about the fact that, oh, he's only one-dimensional. So it's, it's difficult because either you have a player who's good in multiple different areas or who's great in one. And I think that's what a lot of people are forgetting when, when it comes to players, especially like Kai Havertz, for example, is, is that you can either have a player who's multifaceted and that's decent in all those areas, or that's great in one. And I think that's the key thing to note whenever it comes to players, whether it's Kai Havertz, whether it's Mason Mount, whether it's Hakim Ziyech. It's very important to note those things and i'm obviously like understanding that sometimes you know it, it can't be easy being rotating like different positions and all that and trying to cement as well a specific role and not only that under Tuchel he was played as a target man now he's basically being the second striker it's a different role it's it's, it's a different way of thinking so sometimes you need you know more games to get used to that specific role I'm completely understanding of that at this stage. But at the same time, if things don't improve, I'm also aware of the fact that there will have to come a point when we say, okay, is it best that we just cash in? And, and we sadly, consider other agree. options, like, like James Madison. James Madison could be decent, but I guess that de uh, depends. What are you trying to replace Kai with? Are you trying to replace him with a striker or are you trying to replace him with like more of an attacking midfielder? 
maybe someone who offers creativity, the creativity that the fans are craving at the moment, someone who could leak up, you know, with the striker. You know, if Kai cannot offer that, then maybe we can bring in a player that has proven himself, you know, that can offer that. And I would argue, I mean, we could still already have a player like that. Now, someone I wanted to bring in was Broya and get your thoughts on him because you had given mm -hmm. like three kind of adjectives to describe how Kai should be. I think you said something more like energetic, driven, and um, aggressive. And yeah. so I want you to understand, to give me your thoughts on um, Broya. And if he, like, as we've seen him so far in the small sample size, is he kind of really epitomizing those attributes that you said Kai should be? I think, I think Broya is a good striker. Um, what I think he's not, but he's not really a player that you just play him as the lone one. You don't, you need, I think for him, he's more comfortable creating, setting up the opportunities for someone else to take a hold of. I remember the game, like basically there's also this game. Remember where basically there was that counterattack that was so quick. You know, and then afterwards, Roy decides to go wide and then, you know, sees, you know, uh, basically reads the positioning where Ziyech comes in, you know, and passes it to him. That's, that's what he offers. And that's what I like with Roy. You know, he basically offers that. That, that is good. Now, I don't know if he's a, a second striker material. You know, he definitely has good facets to him. He could work alongside an Aubameyang. That could be an option. But at the same time, you know, he's young. It's early doors. There's a lot of things to think about. You know, it's like, okay, well, if you're going to have Aubameyang and Broya, you know, you're going to have to think about the rest of the team, how you're going to structure this to make sure it works. So it's, it's all of those different things, all of those different facets that make it interesting to see what's going to happen on the Potter because it's still early doors. And that's what I like. That's what makes me interesting, uh, interested in this to like on an analytical standpoint or, or tactical standpoint to understand, okay, what is Potter going to do in response to all these different situations? What is he going to learn from that game in Salzburg, from the players, how they played and try and either improve them or improve the team or take the team to another level, basically. And I definitely think that is going to be one silver lining I like about having such fixture congestion between now and the World Cup is that there's a good chance we see a lot of Broya because I don't think we could go without seeing him because mm. if we're playing a game midweek and weekend, I, I looked at the November schedule. I'm pretty sure it is the same exact uh, uh, structure week, midweek and weekend for the first two weeks of November. So the fact that we're going to have that many games, those many, that many games. Yes, I think that's correct. Um, you're going to have to see him either as a sub or as a starter in almost every game because we really only have three strikers, which was something I was very worried about going into the season. Why I didn't necessarily want a bombing himself, but I did want another striker to come in because I was really worried about the depth that we might have, especially if one got hurt. So um, looking forward, that is one thing I'm interested with all these, the fixture congestion is seeing all the different names that are going to come in because i think we're going to see a lot of people like gallagher get a lot more time now um i can't necessarily um explain this well tactically because i i didn't really understand it when i first saw it happen and maybe it was just a 
trying to experiment with the team to try and uh, generate that last goal. But when Ruben came in for Kai, he was almost like the second striker himself. He was much more Mm -hmm. forward than he has been before. And I thought he was really good. I thought he looked much better than he normally was kind of in a pivot role where he kind of sits with Jorginho. I wouldn't say him operates a striker by himself, but like just as a more forward eight, I wouldn't even say a 10 itself. Just it's, I'm having a hard time putting it towards but I think if Gallagher had that same type of um, usage that Ruben did when he was subbed in, I think we would see a, maybe a little more uh, positive uh, impact from Gallagher than where he has been as a pivot player um, kind of earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it comes to, oh, you know, Gallagher and, and Ruben, I think we, when I've seen Ruben, I've seen him best played on the right you know, at the, as a right wing back, right mid, that's when he's played his best, you know, throughout his career. And then maybe, maybe as well as a center forward as well. You know, at times I would see him in those positions, but whenever you try to actually put him at center mid, you know, it's very rarely have I actually seen him, you know, really, really do well, you know, and like, yeah, you've seen him on this area willingness to improve and do better. But at the same time, it's like, uh, I, I do feel like his best positions has always been on the right or as a center forward in those two positions. So it'd be interesting to see what happens because you never know. You know, he could be for the moment like the, and I, and I sound kind of silly saying this, but, you know, when you have Sterling uh, on, on the left wing back, it doesn't sound too surprising, you know, to have, you know, Loftus-Cheek as uh, Rhys James's uh, depth at the moment. You know, or or Dean Rankin, uh, Rankin or something that that is coming in through the ranks. Apparently, it's, he could be basically the backup to to Reece James. You never know. Um, we'll see what happens over there. Of course, in terms of Gallagher, the I'll be honest. I think his start of the season has not gone well. It's not gone to plan whatsoever. Obviously, Tuchel th- was thinking very much that he could be Kante's sort of like replacements. And he has offered that for Crystal Palace. He also has another facet to his game, which is being an attacking midfielder. And I think at some stage, there will have to be a decision on his career. Will he be a backup to Mount? Or will he be a backup to, uh, to Kovacic? And I think this is very much a decision. Well, it's going to be very interesting because Potter will have to make that decision. Yeah, I definitely think that having Potter in now gives everyone, or at least mostly everyone, the chance to hit a reset button and start um, kind of building up from the ground up of what t- in terms of where the career path trajectory is going to go. And um, this is definitely, we keep reiterating this, is that it's too early to read into what Potter's wanting to do and that we're going to have if we had this talk again when the World Cup, and we might, I might have you bring you back on, we may just revisit this whenever the World Cup is about to go because there's going to be a lot of opportunity to talk about Chelsea when the World Cup happens because there's going to be no Chelsea games to go off of. And, and honestly, during this, I'm not totally sure what kind of episodes are record. It might just be based on how Chelsea players look in the national team. But at the same well, time, you might just that, support the USA. Or, yeah, <laughs> that too, if we last long, if we last long. But um, as we also know, the form that um, Chelsea players have in national teams doesn't always translate to how they can impact our team. Like you've seen players like Ethan Ampadu do really well uh, for the Wales national team, but he can't even 
he gets sent out from our own team. Billy Gilmore is a star for the Scottish Nationals team. He gets sent out. So um, maybe in terms of uh, early days for the World Cup, we really assess what Potter has done because I think at that point, we won't be able to say it's too early. It's too small sample size. We're going to get a good sample size. We're going to understand how Potter deals with pressure, fixture congestion, and potential fitness and injuries, honestly. Very very quickly, though, on on, uh, Gilmore and and Ampadu, I think obviously there there were like quotes coming out that basically Bowley really wanted Gilmore to stay. And and I think to me, obviously, like Gilmore clearly wanted to go. He didn't, he was not interested in a loan. He made it very clear, like, you know, before the, the summer started, that basically if there was going to be a loan offer or, or reportedly, you know, if there was going to be a loan offer, he was like, no, I want to leave. I, I want to be to transfer directly. And, and the Bowley was, you know, obviously to, towards the end, there were rumors that basically Bowley was saying, look, stay for a few days. I think he was basically trying to say like, look, stay for a few days, Tuchel might get sacked. You know, you never know. You might have your opportunity. Obviously, he didn't want to say that because, you know. Yeah. Um, and no, but Gilmore was pretty much adamant he wanted to leave because, you know, Tuchel wasn't going to be playing him. So there was just not going to be any points. Um, Ampadu, I mean, look, the board sent him on loan, but they know very what well, they value the player, you know, very highly. And I will not believe that we this will be the end of Ampadu. We could see him again next season. I don't think, though, the loan to that club, to club one to what's the name again? Spezia. Spezia. I don't know where, like, what sort of, like, general league position they're in, you know, through, throughout the seasons. They're not but normally a high if it's, club. Yeah, if they're, if they're not a mid-table team, I don't think that was a smart decision to make. I mean, it's probably a step up from Venezia, but at the same time, it's mm. like it's very shocking that he went to a club like that. And also, I believe now this I think quote came out when Tuchel was still here that that we had asked them to play him as a center back more than a defensive midfielder. But uh, mm. that might kind of go out the door, um, considering mm. Tuchel's gone now. And who knows? I mean, if Jorginho and uh, Conte don't get another contract under us, we have two midfielders going out that. It's not, you can't yeah. say that they couldn't come back in. I mean, what, what I'll say on that is that I do know that Chelsea are very, they're going to try and go back to Alvarez. Um, I do think they'll go back for him in January. We'll see what happens when it comes to Declan Rice. You know, that might be, that's definitely going to be a next summer thing for sure. Uh, and they could we'll even try for De Jong even, again. Hmm? They could even try for De Jong again, depending on what. I don't know. I think, I think De Jong's things is settled. Obviously, like, I think he'll stay at Barca regardless. And then, um, but Leao is going to also be another interesting one. Leao is going to be a very interesting one to see the, the prospects there. Um, but yeah, look, I, it's going to be very interesting. The, like, you know, Boli is not showing any signs of saying, okay, well, we spent 300 million this summer. We're going to relax now. No, no, no. He's definitely showing that he is going to spend more. And he's not going to stop until this team has really good depth and can rival City. That's his objective. Yeah. And I definitely you see some kind of uh, rumors of moves about buying out a club in uh, Portugal, buying one in Brazil, having kind of the city network yeah. kind of developed for Chelsea. It, de- it shows mm-hmm. that there's a – and I – I think it was only rough numbers that we saw when the, over the mm-hmm. contracts and everything were being drawn up about people's proposal, how much they're willing to invest for the club. It sounds like there's a lot more in the bank and behind the scenes than maybe yep. we were really anticipating because yeah. 
These, these, this is, I think, what was Chelsea sold for? Was it four million, four billion, four billion, four billion, yeah, four billion or something like that? Yeah, it sounds like another billion is in the bank ready mm. to be dropped on the, the whole Chelsea project. So, yeah, there, it'd be interesting to see where the kind of develops. Mm. I mean, imagine if we got like Benfica or like our Palmeiras or something and it had a kind of a network link to them. That's I don't scary. think it's going to be Belfica because they play against us yeah. in Champions League. So that's not going to work. Um, what I do find interesting is that, you know, the, the interesting part of that is that if we have any players that we want, like we want to, to have a two-year loan, for example, we can sell them to those clubs for two years, mm-hmm. see how they develop in those clubs. And then from there, you know, uh, you know, bring them back with a Bible clause or whatever. You know, that's, that's a very interesting way of, of doing it. And I'd be very interested to see if that's what Spoli is going to do, what his actually plan is. Obviously, there's, you know, that interesting talk about North East South. I'm sure you heard about. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting. Um, obviously, like, to me, that would obviously benefit the football pyramids. I think, I think it's also a lot more beneficial to, uh, to have a one game like that rather than the Community Shields. You know, you yeah. just replace the Northeast South with what the Community Shield is about, uh, like, is. Um, because, I mean, let, let's be honest, you really need the Community Shield? Not really. Because it's just a team that won the Premier League against the one that won the FA Cup. And it's like, okay, but you won that the season beforehand, you know. I think people use the Community Shield more as a joke than even the Carabao Cup. Yeah. So I think like if you replace, if you basically turn that community shield into like a North East South, it'd probably be a lot more entertaining. And then the FA from there can use that to help, you know, the rest of the football pyramids because they'll probably raise huge amounts of money from that. And I would argue sponsorships and all that. I, yeah, I, I think there's an argument to be made that the criticism Bully has faced for comments like that are very unfair considering that we about mm, year and a half ago maybe or so um where like you're hearing these talks about a super league that are probably just going to ruin the rest of the football pyramid in terms of structure and how the money flow goes and then somebody like uh bully is actually making talks and ideas about ways to help the rest of the football pyramid now there's so many logistics and semantics that you probably would have to iron out to make this even a feasible idea but the fact that someone's starting a conversation about it, regardless if he's American, I mean, and it, it really annoys me. Everyone keeps saying the the American owner. They always point out that he's American versus just saying bully the Chelsea owner. He's the American owner, which really kind of just I get that America and MLS is kind of a bit of a joke to the football world based on how things are done. But he's a businessman. A businessman is universal throughout the world in terms of ways that they can generate ideas and revenue. And I mean, I hate to say it, America's been one of the most successful business and economies in the world. So, I mean, if you, and we've had so many like people that have come out of America that have been- I mean, I I think he was basically seeing the success of the NBA and trying to see, okay, could we do something similar when it comes to England, like try to create an NBA all-star, like, but in a football way in the UK. And the thing is, well, uh, yes, okay, I mean, the NBA has been successful worldwide, but let's be honest, it was generally like that sort of worldwide success. The reason why it was so widely success wasn't down just the NBA. It was down to Michael Jordan. You had a figurehead that basically took the game to a whole new level. 
you know, like he was, he was a brand known worldwide. And, and I think that's what you, I mean, for, I, I don't know, like basically when it comes to, to England, like if they're going to be able to, to do that on the same level, that's the real question. Can they actually do it on the same level? That's another conversation, but <laughs> yeah, that's a completely different subject and that's going to take hours to discuss. Yeah. And in terms of the, the charity match, I think a good idea would be, like you said, replace it with a community shield, but also move it to the end of the regular season instead yeah. of uh, the start of the next season. I think, and mm -hmm. right before uh, you go into the off season, maybe make it after the Champions League final um, in uh, June. I think that would probably be a more ideal. See, you um, also uh, have, I mean, right now, you have a two-week break between the final game of the Premier League season and the Champions League final. You have you literally you can play you can play it then, like that that week in between the two that weekend in between the two you have space for us. My argument to that would be I um and this is traditionally like a lot of things I notice with American sports and something we uh, do in the NFL or the American football yeah um over here is that um right before the playoffs happen which is normally uh, around January or something the last week uh, which we call like I think it's week seventeen or something in the season teams that are normally in the playoffs uh, so think about it as like liverpool man city who have a better chance or chelsea better chance of being the finals of the champions league are, are almost rest all their players in that last week because they don't want to hurt them my only thing is if you play that game before the champions league final and you have like a liverpool or a city in the final i feel uh, like they would be less likely to play the all-stars in that final when there's really nothing on the line other than charity yeah no that's that's fair enough that's that's also a good point, but that's also reason why it's probably best to do it when the community shield is playing. Then, yeah. So I so would like say just replace it, the community shield with a northeast south. Yeah. And the trophy being that charity shield trophy is what you win, basically. No, yeah, I definitely, I definitely think like people shouldn't dismiss it because because I think they think they see an American concept when mm. they hear that and they think no, we don't need to Americanize our own sport. You need to listen to the point where it helps the football pyramid and it helps everybody below you. I mean, think mm. about the fact that you've had a couple big clubs like Wigan, Derby, go into financial administration and distress, and then they've given us great players and they've given they've had a lot of help, like giving us uh, uh being loan destinations where our players develop. Imagine like, who knows? Um. This is a very, very speculative conversation where we have no idea to anticipate the future of the football pyramid, where things go. But eventually, if all the big money, if something like the Super League came back and we started losing clubs like that little by little, the, the, it's going to break off. The top's going to break off from the rest of the football pyramid. So, so, so putting things like this in place to where clubs in those administration like issues can receive who knows how much of the revenue because I think he, and it wasn't the NBA he cited. It was the MLB, mainly because uh, the MLB All-Star Game, I believe, was in London this past year, I think. Um, I think they actually hosted the MLB All-Star Game. And because he's the Dodgers owner, so he's a little bit more familiar with MLB. Um, but I think he said it raised over $200 million or so. So imagine if you took Chelsea's transfer window and you mm -hmm. just redistributed it down the football period. And however, they can. I'm just saying. Okay. It's um, Well... Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, there's many different ways that we can do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we'll, we'll see at the end of the day. You know, uh, there is, it's obviously just an idea. Uh, 
I'm sure we'll discuss about it a lot more. Yeah. So um, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode. And I just have three quick predictions I want you to make um, that are not Chelsea related and one Chelsea, two not Chelsea related, one Chelsea related. I just want your ideas on. We don't have to go into a long conversation about just uh, what you want. Uh, Today, for those that saw any of the match days, I don't know if you watched the game, the Spurs versus Leicester game, but Spurs absolutely annihilated, uh, sorry, Human Son absolutely annihilated Leicester. Uh, with a hat trick and Tottenham beat them 6-2. Leicester currently sit bottom of the table with one point in seven games. Does Brendan Rodgers get sacked this international break? Whoa. Um, hmm. I don't know. That's a good question. I've seen sackings more happen in the international break. If it's going to happen, it'll happen then. Otherwise, it won't happen until the World Cup. So it's either this international break or the World Cup. And I think he will have to convince the boards, really, that he deserves to stay in that position. It'll probably be tricky, but it's likely that it'll go either in the international break of this one, so the September one, or the World Cup. Um, short of like, like obviously, like short of him turning around the games and the fortunes, you know, for the team, that's what I see happening. But yes or no, just say yes or no. Will you get sick this international? I'd say it's likely. You're not betting money, so, so no, I'm saying yes? it's likely because I'm saying yes. Yeah, I, I'm saying it's likely. I, I'm not, I'm not saying it with 100% certainty. Now, I, I think it will happen. Okay. Next one. Recently, we all probably saw Diego Costa has been brought back to England and has actually signed for Wolverhampton. Does Diego Costa uh, go over or under 10 goals assist this season? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, mm, that's a freaking good question. That's I originally, thought it was, I originally had it at five. But I thought he could probably easily get five goals, um, even maybe an assist. So I just want to make 10 goals assist over under for the whole season. Um, dear me. And I don't I don't I, think I don't know. Um I don't know. This is difficult. This is very difficult. Okay, I'm not going to beat around the bush. I'm going to say no, because he hasn't in the past two or three seasons. I don't think it's going to happen. I was going to say no as well. So don't don't, don't be scared about saying no to that one. All right, last one to round out the episode. If Chelsea make it out of the UCL group stage, will Chelsea sign Cristiano Ronaldo in January? No. No? No. You think it's now? I mean... As much as Bowley uh, wanted him and Tuchel's now gone? No, because it's ended up to Potter. He's going to have to have a conversation with him. And I don't think Potter will want, uh, will want Cristiano Ronaldo. Okay, so at least you're, you're fairly definitive about that one. I just thought it was an interesting one, considering that Ronaldo's now playing Thursday nights. And if we made it into Champions League, it would make it a little more interesting for him. To no, know. I look, I, I, it's not... I'm, obviously, I do rate Ronaldo a lot. But I just don't think that a player of that ego, of that 
draw uh, that desire basically you know it it would just basically bring dysfunction to the team because then afterwards you have to make sure that he is the top man you know he is the guy that everyone should follow he has to be the leader he has to be the captain it dysfunctions the entire structure yeah and and i definitely i agree with that but mm-hmm. if you have if you make it to january past world cup and everything and kai hasn't kicked off broya hasn't kicked off a bombing hasn't kicked off and we're not scoring goals we're looking bad i mean think about it tuchel was the main one to say no i do not want him but bully is saying that uh he wants ronaldo maybe grand potter is more of a yes man does he really say no to maybe ronaldo on a on a one-year contract I would, I would still say no. I would think that basically the better option would be go for Rafael out. Okay. And definitely, this is not more like you. It's like being what you think Chelsea would realistically do. I don't think yeah. it would happen just because I think it's a hard as hell sell to get anybody in the chance for window, let alone Ronaldo. But I think his contract is runs out in May. So I think he's technically on a free in the summer. I'm not... Not positive, I still think that Chelsea will push for Rafael Lau instead of him. Um, I I know that obviously like Bolly is interesting and very star name signings. Liao is definitely one in mind. Obviously, Chelsea had the opportunity to sign Neymar, apparently, but yeah, obviously, like you know, I don't know why it didn't happen. Uh probably like Tuchel didn't want him or Bolly didn't want him either. But um yeah, it's to me the focus right now seems very much on Leo. All right, no, fair enough. I and I definitely think that's probably a more sensible signing than Ronaldo for the mm-hmm. term future. Well, thank you, Alex, for coming on and having this long um, discussion with me. Um, we'll probably have to have you back on um, as the World Cup kicks off, so we can really review this conversation and really go over our big sample size. Um, but yeah, any final notes from you? Um, no, it's just been great to be on. Uh, obviously, this was probably a longer discussion than you expected initially. Well, you'll basically look back <laughs> on, on your end. But no, I mean, honestly, great seeing you again. Great having this chat. And yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to hearing this back as well. Yeah, so I definitely think we sh- I should be able to get this out um by tomorrow mm. um and then i'll probably have a couple more people come on just do a little more chelsea therapy sessions um i think with the international break i really want to be able to get a lot of people's different viewpoints we might ask some of the similar questions that i asked alex today um just to see um with people how they're feeling because i don't want to go too stale for like two weeks long um just because people like to have stuff coming in but uh yeah thank you again alex for coming in um and I just thank you, listener, for uh, saying to to the end of the episode. Hopefully, I'll be able to get you another uh, episode out by the end of the week. But yeah, until next time, stay true and stay blue. <laughs>